The 2022 World Cup is getting closer and closer, folks. The groups are known, the squads are being built, and the hot takes are already coming in. The hot takes are already coming in. Some of y'all need to relax. Seriously. We don't need that many hot takes. It's going to be 130 degrees. It's going to be hot enough. Regardless, in today's episode of the Tactics Room, we'll chat two national teams, one of which is a favorite to win the competition, and one of which who has fans who think they're a favorite uh, to win the competition. Brazil and the United States, the first of hopefully many World Cup discussions on this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tactics Room presented by Breaking Lies. My name is Will Fowler, your host, as some of you hopefully know and or remember. Uh, you have made it to episode 15. Cheers. Congrats. You, uh, you, you've arrived. If you're a returning listener, again, welcome back. So happy to see you again. So happy to, uh, so happy that you've chosen to, uh, again, spend some time of your day to, uh, to chat. If you're new, welcome. Thank you for, for popping in. If you like what you hear in the next few minutes, and by few, I mean, if I have to venture a guess, 52. That's my guess for today's episode, 52 minutes. Uh, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and following me and the brand on Twitter, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's only if you enjoy what you hear. Although if you don't enjoy what you hear and you do survive the 50 something odd minutes uh, long enough to get to where I end up plugging the Twitter accounts, uh, why'd you do that? Why did you do that? Why'd you go all that way if you were listening to a podcast that you didn't enjoy? Uh, if you get there, please consider following, but I'll save that for the end. Uh, two big topics today. Number one, Brazil, currently the favorite to win the World Cup in 2022, and, might I add, it's justified. Despite being kind of depressing in the 2018 World Cup in Russia, we will be tackling what has changed, because it's the same player, um, uh, same manager, should I say, and, and mostly the same players, although there is a little bit of roster turnover, as there always is with World Cup squads. Um, but, regardless, there's wildly different outlooks between 2018's Brazil and 2022's Brazil. There's one big tweak, spoiler alert, there's one big tweak that's allowing Brazil to get the most out of its best player. We'll talk about it. Then we'll take um, <laughs> we'll take a step that can only be described as underwhelming down to the United States of America, from Brazil to the U.S. men's national team. Uh, a nation, though, back in the World Cup finals after missing in Russia, uh, but sights don't stop on the group stage. If you're familiar with American sports or the, the American soccer fandom, the, the the end goal is not getting to the group stage. There are bigger aspirations in play, but still some roster holes. So which players which players currently on the periphery that could uh, could be in the fold when the Stars and Stripes take to the pitch in Doha? We'll chat uh, about that. MLS and Europe, by the way, you're both represented, so I don't want you fighting. I don't want you fighting in the in the Twitter replies or the comments. You're both there. I've, I've paid attention to both of you. And of course, uh, Bet the Bank, one young player who you can leverage the house on to become a star. Maybe not the house, but you can uh, you can bet some good money on them reaching the top. A uh, good one for this week. I think uh, fans of English football will certainly be familiar with them and might restart them sooner rather than later. 4 minutes 22 seconds for the intro. That is too long. Hey, that's a that's a poor start, isn't it? Let's jump right into it then. Uh, we will begin today's World Cup episode in Conmebol in South America where Brazil are again 
dreaming of lifting the World Cup trophy. And as I mentioned, they are a, a bigger threat now than they were in 2018. I don't think that's a wild uh, thing to say. Not that they weren't weren't in that you know top tier of contenders in 2018, but now it feels different. And you know that that seems to be the consensus surrounding this Brazil squad. They are the favorite according to to the bookies and the odds makers to win as of what April 27th. And we all know that. World Cup odds seven months in advance tend to be the most accurate. Uh, backslash sarcasm. Um, but regardless, Brazil are still the favorite to win the World Cup. Um, what's changed is a couple of, of tactical and personnel tweaks. Um, but those those minor tweaks have allowed them to get the most out of their best player, which is, of course, Fred. No, it's Neymar, uh, which wasn't necessarily the case in 2018. Um, but in order to, to discuss this this topic. And in order to understand why Brazil were so underwhelming in 2018, we need to go even further back. We need to go back to, to the late 1990s, early 2000s, when Brazil were playing some of the best football that the international side of the sport had ever seen. Of course, champions in 1994 in the US, champions in 2002 in Korea, Japan, runners up in 1998 in France. Brazil, uh, in that, that eight year window, uh, they were in the middle of the longest run of dominance from a national team since, ironically enough, Brazil themselves in the 1960s and into 1970. I know, I, I know for all you, all you contrarians, West Germany did a couple things in between those two time periods, 70s, 80s, but um, that's not as poetic, is it? That, that, doesn't, that doesn't write the headlines. So we're going to say that it was the best run of form since Brazil in the 60s. Um, and that's completely attributable to that, that style of play, that, that coined Jogo Bonito style of play, coined, by the way, by Pele, uh, the beautiful game, that emphasized flair, creativity, thinking with your feet, not your mind. That, that is what Brazilian football was. Brazilian football was every bit as artistic as it was sporting. It was, it was sure, it was, it was a sporting performance, but it was like a, a, a it was a display even more so, what you were watching was a display. Um, we hear of club supporters groups speaking about how sometimes it isn't enough for a team to win, they must win beautifully. Uh, and Brazil swears by that. That That is is an emphasis of Brazilian football, is both winning and entertaining. And so knowing that makes it easier to chat about Brazil in 2018 and why it didn't work. Because at a visual level, it was stale. It was homogenous. It was ordinary. There was nothing that made them different from any other top-level European national team. And again, they weren't bad. They weren't worse. Oh, well, they were worse. It was hard to be as good as they were in the, the late 1990s. But they weren't, like, no longer a contender on the World Cup stage. It just didn't feel like Brazil. It felt like, insert any national team, insert any world-class national team here. Like we said, stale football, repetitive football, not that 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 freedom of expression was not there as it had been uh, when they were at their peak. And it didn't feel like you were watching Brazil. And at a, at a tactical level, there was this allegiance in 2018 to prioritizing team shape and structure. Uh, and that the trade off was that there wasn't much room for the side's individual flair to show itself. But the biggest loser in this scenario was, of course, Neymar, who was neglected that tactical and positional freedom that he typically loves to have. So let's chat about Brazil in 2018, and then we'll chat about Brazil in 2022 and what's changed and why they're so much better now. So surface level stuff first, typical 4-3-3 that Brazil played in. Allison in goal, a back four of Marcelo, Miranda, Thiago Silva, and Fogner. 
Casemiro as the holding midfielder, Philip Coutinho and Paulinho as two number eights. And then the attacking three was left to right, Neymar, Gabriel Jesus, and Willian. Now, already, it, what stunned, not even stunned, but like what was intriguing to me was that there are players in this team that we don't hear from anymore. I mean, this was not 20 years ago. This was this was the last World Cup. Names like Miranda, Fogner, uh, even, even Paulinho is... is by and large, out. I mean, he's back in in Brazil, back in in um, Brazilian football. So there are names in this team that don't jump out at you. But even more so than that, it, it was the way that this team played, and and a big principle of of this side in possession that you notice almost immediately is their insistence on creating passing triangles using the two number eights, right? Felipe Coutinho and Paulinho, the more advanced. Uh, of the midfield of the midfield three, they would create triangles with the wingers, with the fullbacks who would attack the halfway line. Kind of Marcelo would attack far further than that. I mean, Marcelo would get to the end line whenever he damn field like it. But and the main avenue, what was interesting about about that is that they've got these two triangles, right? On the left, it's Coutinho, Neymar, Marcelo. On the right, it's Paulinho, Willian, and Fogner. But they really only used one of them. And that was down the left, that Marcelo Coutinho-Neymar triangle, as you might expect. It's obviously the more the more talented of the two shapes that they've they've manufactured. But the problem was that the the one on the right wasn't really used. The triangle that included a more reserved fullback in Fogner and the less talented winger in Willian, it was kind of neglected. Like it, it was it was whenever Brazil built, it was mostly down that left flank. And that already creates an issue, right? Because if you're making it a point to build through the flanks the way Brazil wanted to in the World Cup at times, you need to be able to effectively use both flanks. You need to be able to effectively use both triangles that you're creating with your number eights or else the defense will tighten up. They'll press harder. They will commit more bodies to that stronger triangle because they know that's where the bulk of your of your progression and possession will be. They'll either suffocate that winger, which in this case was Neymar, who you don't want to be suffocated, or they'll prevent the switch of play and trap the ball on that side, or they'll allow the switch and move the ball away from those danger players, test their luck, which usually worked because William didn't contribute a whole lot of anything in the chance creation department, despite starting all five matches. I mean, one key pass uh, per match versus Neymar's 4.6, it was clear that William's output was not anywhere close to Neymar's. So opposition defenses were far more willing to suffocate that side of the pitch, force the switch. And if William hurts us, William hurts us. And spoiler alert, William never hurt us. If you can use both triangles effectively, you can stretch the defense horizontally, maybe get Gabriel Jesus or the opposite number eight into those vertical half spaces that you're now creating because they need to respect both sides of the pitch. But they weren't able to do that because they relied so heavily on this one triangle with Marcelo Coutinho and Neymar. And so already, uh, Neymar is not able to be as effective as he would have liked because there's no space for him to operate in. Um, so that that's one thing. What do you do in response if you still really want to use that triangle? This is not a novel issue that Tite was the first manager in the history of the sport to ever have to deal with. Like this is not this is not rocket science, groundbreaking stuff. Uh, if you've got two triangles and you prioritize one over the other and the defense cheats towards that side. What do you do in response? Well, there's a number of things, but the big one is you try to rotate those three players as much as you can, right? You maybe switch Neymar with Coutinho because Coutinho can play well as a winger 
also when Neymar with that freedom to roam can operate as a more central player in a triangle, have Neymar play as that temporary aid, Coutinho as the winger, Marcelo makes the overlapping runs, turns him into the most advanced player of the three, switch Coutinho and Paulinho maybe, the two number eights to distract a defender. These subtle movements to move the defense around manufacture space in those areas because that's where Neymar will be effective when that space can be manufactured and then Neymar can get in and exploit it no matter where it is on the pitch. And this is where Tite's marriage to structural solidity kind of let him down because those switches didn't happen very often. Coutinho was usually burdened with that more central role, creating the chances, playing the incisive balls, running at the penalty area, running at midfielders and defenders to pull players out of the game. While Neymar stayed on the left side of the attacking three, and oftentimes getting marked very, very tightly. And Tite didn't want to rotate the players as frequently as he should have. He wanted Neymar to stay over on the left. Why? I think we'll dive into it a little bit more in the future. But on on a surface level, that inhibits Neymar's ability to do what he does best, which is manipulate the ball. It's his ability to at times drop deeper from an inverted winger position, drop into the midfield, find the space and then play some line cutting ball or run out and take two or three defenders out of the game at once. And in this position, Neymar wasn't able to do that as effectively. And what's interesting is that that role Coutinho was playing is probably the one that you want Neymar playing just, just like for like that's probably Coutinho's responsibilities are the ones that you want Neymar taking on. Obviously it didn't happen, but that's not to say that Neymar didn't get himself involved. He absolutely did. But when he wasn't with the ball at his feet, He was forced, whether it's forced or whether it was his own decision, but whatever, he was very passive in his movements so not to compromise the shape, so not to compromise that 4-3-3. He didn't drop into the space as frequently as he should have. He didn't. He didn't have that same freedom to roam that we see him get now at PSG because that 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 marriage to keep the attacking three in shape, Neymar, Gabriel Jesus and William. Um, obviously, if Neymar moves away from it and drifts somewhere else, the shape is compromised. That's uh, a trade that Tite wasn't interested in making, uh, for better or for worse, mostly for worse. That was an instruction for Willian as well, not to compromise the shape, which is fine, uh, because he's at his best when he's running at defenders with the ball. So keeping him pinned in that right wing position was not the end of the world, probably the smart thing. But Neymar is so good when he can hunt for those pockets of space in the center of the pitch, exploit them. He didn't really get the chance to do that in the system that Brazil used in 2018, so much of that creative burden, as we said, in the center of the park, up to Coutinho. And then while uh, Coutinho and Paulinho stayed in the center, Neymar wreaked havoc against the opposing right back, defensive midfielder. Still not a bad role, not a bad job. And he did that very, very dutifully. But I think it didn't unlock the best out of Neymar, that insistence on keeping the shape and uh, and using Coutinho and Paulinho as the creative players through that that central channel. They also, I mean, say what you want about the importance of this. In 2018, certainly it maybe is less important than it would be now, for example. Um, they didn't press super frequently out of possession in Brazil, which limited Neymar's influence in counterattacking opportunities. Only 174 pressures per 90, 19th in the field, according to FB Ref. Now, that could be partly just because they kept so much possession of the ball. Um, I think it was at or near 60% possession in a, a relatively weak group with what, Costa Rica, Switzerland and Serbia, question mark. I believe it was Serbia. If it wasn't Serbia, then I'm going to look like a fool. Um, But when they did lose it, even in moments when they did lose it, 
uh, they did seem rather content to back off, reorganize into that 4-3-3 or 4-1-4-1 instead of trying to win it back high. And of course, that limits what Neymar can do in counterattacking opportunities. So uh, if we want to go uber, ultra, mega hindsight bias, it's very easy to look at Brazil in 2018 and say that they were destined to fail just because of, of this, this insistence on structure which again is is not a overwhelmingly brazilian mindset not to to generalize an entire nation's theory on football but you think of brazilian football when it was at his best it's an art right it's it's the the individual the individualistic nature of it is what makes it so attractive and that wasn't present in 2018 and it you know conversely uh it meant that the best attributes of their best player weren't able to be tapped into. So let's talk about now, three and a half years later, Brazil are the favorites to win the World Cup, and you will hear no complaints from me. I actually, as of today, April 27th, have them winning the FIFA World Cup in Doha, unbeaten in a notoriously difficult comfortable qualifying process, 14 wins in 17, 40 goals scored, five conceded, Loads of young talent pouring into the first team. Neymar playing at his best. Bold, underline, asterisk, italicize, uh, scream from the rafters. That's the big thing. What's changed? That's that's the question. Again, we'll start with the the, the on paper service level stuff. It's a four two three one compared to a four three three. Actually, asterisk because. It's a four two three one is the preferred shape. We still see Tite use that four three three. We saw him use it at times in qualifying, but it seems like in the big game, and predominantly, Tite prefers a four two three one. Why? It provides a more stable base for both your out of possession shape and for ball progression. Maybe Casemiro. Maybe he doesn't feel Casemiro has the legs to be the lone defensive midfielder anymore. Maybe he doesn't want Casemiro in the eleven at all, and he instead wants to go with Fred and Fabinho, which. Uh, which work well together. Perhaps Tite is trying to play through the center more, which would be an optimistic sign. But the other thing that, that the 4 2 3 gives you, it gives you a high action number 10 who can get alongside the striker, press the opposition. Usually we've seen that be uh, Luca Pacata. Wingers that are game breakers with the ball at their feet, players like Vinicius, Rafinha, Anthony, and of course Neymar can fill in either one of these roles as the number 10 as a winger. He's popped up in both. So that's on the surface, this, this, ta- this, uh, structural shift from a 4-3-3 to a 4-2-3-1 and why it suits them. But in practice, Neymar's role is is far more dynamic. It doesn't really matter if he's starting as a a winger on the left or as the number 10. And that's because uh, the first big change is that that positional freedom that we just chatted about for 10 minutes, maybe even more, uh, that he wasn't granted in 2018. What I think was the nail in the coffin for Brazil in 2018, one of that position of freedom that he didn't get in favor of team shape has now been granted to him. He now has that position of freedom. I wish this was anything other than a podcast because I would show you the heat maps from 2018 World Cup versus 2022 World Cup qualifying. Like it's staggering. Anybody with two eyes and an understanding of colors could see that these two things are very, very different. And of course, he's excelling in this role because why wouldn't he? It's the reason why he's so unplayable on his best day. It's interesting because some of Neymar's best moments at the 2018 World Cup, as disappointing as it was uh, relative to the expectations, were some of his best moments were when he were he was linking with players in the buildup and progressive phases, which seems kind of antithetical to what his role was, which was the team's goal scorer. 
little hint at why maybe Tite wasn't as eager to let him drop into deeper spaces in 2018. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm jumping the gun. I've got my notes. We'll get to it in due time. But now he's got this, this license to roam, position, instruction, and it's able to more, more, more thoroughly tap into that elite combination that we know Neymar possesses of goal scoring and playmaking. Again, wish I could show you the heat maps. I can't. But his World Cup 2018 heat map, very left side heavy. His Colombia 2022 heat map, much more expansive, much more balanced. He's taking up positions everywhere on the pitch. And when I said that Neymar was at his best back in the in the mini pivot, the mini segue into this 2022 portion, that appears in basically every single number as well. 3.6 key passes per 90 leads Conmebol, led Conmebol, should I say, because Conmebol qualifying is over and Brazil ran through it. Uh, 3.6 key passes per 90 led Conmebol. 5.5 dribbles completed at a 66% success rate is bullying. (laughs) That is outrageous. He should be serving 25 to life for a number like that. Are you kidding me? Five and a half dribbles completed at a 66% success rate? Why even put a defender in front of him? He's going to get by him. That's how good he was with, with when he was running with the ball in World Cup qualifying. 11 big chances created, nearly doubled the next best, which was Rodrigo de Paul at Argentina. Eight goals, eight assists, pretty convincingly, I would say. And I hope that I've convinced you. Pretty convincingly, the player of South African qualifying. And again, it's not rocket science trying to figure out why. It's when he can when he can pull the reins and dictate the way that Brazil play instead of, respectfully, Coutinho, Paulinho, and aging fullbacks. Things go smoother. What a novel idea. What what a what a groundbreaking idea. Let your best player be in charge of attacking moves. It's wild. Um, he forces opposing players to make a decision. He pulls players away from, from what their assigned zones are. He opens up space for others to exploit. And he does it all at a world-class level in a world-class national side. And that's all well and good. That's spectacular. There is one other key difference why Tite might be more willing to do that now than he was in 2018. Curveball. Here we go. Out of the blue. What was behind the curtain? Well, it was this extra extra little nugget, extra little tidbit. Part of the reason why Tite was so hesitant to move Neymar away from those traditional positions that you would see an inverted winger take on, those, uh, those, those vertical half space positions, those 1v1 with the fullback positions, the reason why Neymar was pretty much glued to those is because it, there wasn't you look at that Brazil team from 2018, and there wasn't another definitive, reliable, trustworthy goal scorer in the team. And Tite probably felt like he needed Neymar in positions closer to the goal, because what not not because Neymar wouldn't have been effective by dropping deeper, but instead because when you moved him away from goal, for example, dropping into space to progress the ball. There wasn't a player still in the attacking third that you were comfortable with taking a chance if Neymar created one for him. Gabriel Jesus in 2018, come on. I mean, he started all five games at striker for, for this Brazil side. Uh, he was not the, the poaching goal scorer that, uh, that some other national teams boasted. Paulinho, come on. Willian, don't make me laugh. Neymar was the team's chief creator and chief goal scorer. 
But I think Tite felt like he could only pick one because there was not this embarrassment of riches that Brazil had. So he chose to keep Neymar higher up the pitch, sacrificed some of his playmaking ability in exchange for him to always be in threatening goal scoring positions. That's why I think Neymar was handcuffed to that spot. And that's my full analysis of why I think Neymar was handcuffed to that left wing spot and why we didn't see him roam as much as we would have liked. Again, hindsight is 2020. It's easy to look at Neymar's form now and say, why wasn't he doing that then? But I think that's the reason. That's a big reason why Tite felt like that's where he needed to put Neymar is because when you took Neymar away from those positions, you couldn't trust Gabriel Jesus or Willian to, to consistently take a chance. Like, like my, my litmus test for this is if you, if you, nil-nil, right, 88th minute, ball falls to blank from 12 yards out. Do you trust them to bury the chance? Neymar, obviously. Gabriel Jesus, Willian, I am far more hesitant to say yes. That's my litmus test. And so I think TJ felt he needed to keep Neymar in those positions. Didn't allow him to drop and create. Left the responsibility for Coutinho and Polinho, who, by the way, were fine. They were good. But it wasn't. Neymar good. Speaking about how things have changed over the last three and a half years, the development of elite level forwards for Brazil has been superb. And that is no longer the reality of, of Tite in Brazil's situation. We see players like Vinicius, who's finally emerged into a top forward. We knew he was elite uh, in one one scenarios, dribbling with the ball at his feet. He always has been. He had been since he arrived at the Bernabeu. But this season, he's finally emerged as somebody who can find the back of the net as well. I did a piece a bit earlier in the season about his refined uh, goal scoring numbers. He's more uh, efficient in the goal scoring department. He's obviously scoring more goals as well. Prefers to play on the left where Neymar plays. Perhaps including Vinicius in the lineup gives Neymar more freedom because you've got somebody to stay in those those positions at left wing. You've got Richarlison who can play as a center forward. Even like, you know, we talk about 2018 Gabriel Jesus. 2018 Gabriel Jesus and 2022 Gabriel Jesus are not the same player. Not even close. And maybe 2022 Gabriel Jesus is a player who you do trust to to find the back of the net. He's been on scintillating goal-scoring form for Manchester City this season, playing in that kind of hybrid center-forward, inverted winger over on the right role. And then you've got these dynamic dribblers, Anthony, Rafinha, more, more dynamic, more creative than Willian was in 2018. You've got a player like Gabriel Martinelli who's taken big steps this season with Arsenal. It's no longer, and again, I'm not saying every single one of those players is better than what Willian was in 2018, but the point is it's no longer a situation where Neymar needs to be in these threatening goal-scoring positions for Brazil. He needs to be the one attacking the penalty area uh, because they have players who can who can take up those positions in place of him now. It's not even close to, to what they had in 2018. And I think it goes a long way into explaining why Neymar feels and looks so much freer when he puts on that Brazil kit now compared to four years ago. He's able to take on those deeper positions. He's able to push the ball forward or run at defenders or play those little one-twos with wingers to grant him space further up the pitch. And if, uh, uh, callback, if you're paying attention, he's kind of now playing that Coutinho role from 2018. Remember, we talked about how how... In Coutinho in the World Cup in 2018, you wanted Neymar in that role. Now he is in that role, uh, the one where he had license to roam, license to progress the ball. And sure, it takes him away from goal-scoring positions when they play quick, but that doesn't really matter as much anymore because it's no longer just him. When you plug Vinicius on the left, an exceptional 1v1 player, really refined his finishing since the summer, 
Neymar can play as a 10 staying in the middle of the pitch or as a 9 that drops deep and switches with an advanced midfielder or maybe a winger moves into that central channel like Richard Lisson or Gabriel Jesus while the fullback advances on the right side. The all-around depth of Brazil's attacking group has completely unlocked their best player and it's improved them on several fronts, which makes them an infinitely bigger threat to lift the trophy than they were four years ago. This this attacking strategy, this this chance creation strategy from Brazil is in in most ways similar, right? In most ways it's similar because it's at the end of the day, let Neymar do what the hell he wants. Um and that's a very rudimentary, simplified version of it. It's clearly deeper than just that. But it, it now in 2022 versus then in 2018, getting to that point where Neymar has the freedom and has the space to operate and has the instruction to do whatever he wants, it's much easier for that to happen. And it's because of now the players that Neymar has around him. It's kind of an, an, an interesting paradox, isn't it? Because it doesn't feel like everything has to run directly through Neymar anymore, which actually makes it easier for things to run through Neymar, right? Opposing teams can't glue in on marking Neymar tightly, forcing him away from the ball, bringing, bringing extra pressures because of all these other attacking players that they've now got to worry about. So, because Brazil have those players and because they don't need to rely so heavily on Neymar anymore, it makes it easier to rely heavily on Neymar. It's a fascinating uh, paradox. Um, don't get me wrong. Neymar is still, without a doubt, the team's best goal scorer. I'm not suggesting anything contrary to that point, uh, but he no longer has to be the team's only goal scorer. There's an important distinction there. They finally have a game plan predicated on creating space for Neymar to get into. Uh, that works because in 2018, it didn't really but now it does. Uh, they wanted to do that, of course, but that model centered around uh, creating opposing triangles and then ignoring one of them, <laughs> we kind of shot them in the foot. And I, I don't mean to get ahead of myself, but if this Brazil side does play at its best, does play the way it's capable of, it, it could be, I think, it could be two things. It could be the most dangerous side at the World Cup, and it could be the most aesthetically pleasing side at the World Cup, which are not the same thing, and it's not that common anymore because you've got Neymar, this, this relentlessly smooth freedom to roam, picking his own actions wingers with this unbelievable extraterrestrial skill, uh, that love to run at defenders, a solidified defense bolstered by this bludgeoning defensive midfielder in Casemiro or, or a pivot that includes somebody else. This could be, am I going to, am I getting way too far ahead of myself? This could be the closest thing to that Jogo Bonito style that we talked about in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, this could be the closest thing to that that we've seen since. Uh, I, that, that's the potential of this Brazil side, is, is Jogo Bonito, real Jogo Bonito. Um, but there's a long way to go. And if they can't do it on the biggest stage, which is the World Cup, what's it worth? So that's a little insight. Ugh, Christ, if you're a recur recurring listener, you know that I can't segue topics. I'm not even going to try. 